We've studied for the month of December through the what we call the Christmas story through Luke chapters 1 and 2, Matthew chapters 1 and 2, and uh, there's so much more that could have been said, and here we come to the main event. God has worked and brought together a cast of ordinary people and at the same time, unordinary people, people of great faith, but people who had no idea that God had a plan for their lives. And all of us need to take a step back and realize that each one of us are to present ourselves unto the Lord, a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God. Why? So that we can prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Just as God used Zacharias and Elizabeth and uh, worked a miracle in their lives that uh, should not have happened, but it did, uh, it, at a time of their lives where they're, they're into retirement and should have been well-stricken in age, all of a sudden there's a baby, their baby. Their, their child would be used to strengthen the faith of Mary when the angel came to her and said, you're going to bear the child that is going to be the savior of the world. Um, we saw that God appeared to that precious lady Mary in, in the town of Nazareth and uh, told her what was going to happen. And she didn't doubt. She didn't question. She didn't get anxious about it. She said, behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. What an amazing young lady. God appeared to Joseph when he found out that his fiance was, was going to have a baby and he knew it wasn't his but he was a just man, a righteous man, a man with a heart to serve God. And as soon as he found out that Mary wasn't making up this story, the angel appeared to him and said, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is born of her is the son of God. And you're going to call him Jesus, which means uh, God is my savior, for he shall save his people from their sin. This cast of characters, God has put them all in place. And in Luke chapter two, now it's the, it's the big event. This is what it's all about. And uh, there's just so much wonder in this precious story. Every time I've, I've read it, uh, how many of you are of the age when uh, Charlie Brown's specials came on every year when we were kids and they weren't reruns? How many remember that? A bunch of people started putting their hands up. Thought, oh, wait, they were reruns. Uh, yeah, some of us are the age when, you know, it was, it was the real deal. Uh, how many remember Charlie Brown's Christmas? And uh, the, all of Char Charlie and all his little friends are all upset about trees and lights and decorations. And, you know, he found the most pitiful tree in the entire world as only Charlie Brown could. And uh, all of his friends are making fun of him and mocked him and so forth. And out came Li Linus with his blanket. And he just stood out there and he quoted Luke chapter 2. And it came to pass in those days and quoted the whole passage. I don't know if you know this. Uh, but the networks did not want to air that episode of Charlie Brown because of the inclusion of the word of God in the story. They were okay with trees and lights and maybe Santa Claus, but they didn't want to put it in there. Uh, but the, the creator behind it, I believe it was Chuck Schultz as the guy behind it, said, said uh, no Luke chapter 2, no Christmas special. It's not going to happen and for, dec for, for decades now that has aired. And, and I think it's wonderful that in, in every child's life that watches that, there's a reminder, it's not about a tree, it's about a savior. It's about a savior born in Bethlehem. The miracles of that night are beyond description. There aren't, there aren't enough Sunday mornings to preach about them all. There aren't enough moments of the day for us to take them in and meditate on them and let them sink into our soul to realize how much God did for us. I love this, the choir special today. 
what kind of a king would leave his throne and come here? What kind of a Lord would leave his home? Uh, what kind of a God would love enough to romance a world that is so separated from him? And of course, I'm, I'm killing the lyrics, but I, I listened to that song kind of for the first time today. And boy, my heart was over. Well, what kind of a God would do that? Well, our God. Yeah. Our God, the God of the Bible. Isn't that an amazing thing? As we look at the fulfillment of the birth of Christ and Joseph and Mary there in that manger, she brings forth her firstborn son and wraps him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. For the first few moments of the night, it was just Joseph and Mary. They're the only people in the entire universe that knew that Christ the Lord had been born. They were the only ones that really knew and believed that the, the angels had come and talked to them and told them it was going to happen. Now they're, they're sitting there and they're looking at it. Um, the songwriter said, Mary, did you know that when you kiss your little baby, you're kissing the face of God? Do you understand? They're the only ones that knew that because the angel told Joseph his name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. Can you imagine the awe of that moment? There were no carolers. There were no Christmas lights. There was no violin music in the background. There was no fading in and out of the cameras. It was just a simple carpenter and his bride and that precious little baby boy that they looked at and knew he was going to be the savior of the world. It wouldn't be long the message would be passed on to the shepherds. And from the shepherds, the Bible says they went abroad telling everybody around them that the savior would be born. And in time gone by, uh, the message would get to the wise men. They travel from the east to Jerusalem and soon all Jerusalem would know about it. But that night, it was just a mom and a dad with a new baby looking down into the face of God and marveling, how did we ever come to be a part of this? As I consider the Christmas message in the story, I'm, I love the words in verse number one of our text, and it came to pass in those days, and it came to pass. The birth of Christ is the fulfillment of prophecies that go back 4,000 years. A prophecy is, is in, uh, in essence, a promise that God makes saying this is what I'm going to do or this is what's going to happen. That's what a prophecy is. 4,000 years before the birth of Christ in the Garden of Eden, God gave the very first promise that a Savior was going to come. It happened on the very day that man decided he loved the fruit of a tree more than he loved God. That, 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 that tasting that forbidden fruit was more important than his loyalty to God. And he made a deliberate choice against God and he ate of that fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And suddenly his eyes were open, but he didn't become as a God. He became a sinner. He understood what shame was for the first time in his life. He understood what guilt was. He understood what regret was. And he, he and Eve suddenly realized we've made the greatest mistake of our lives and they had no idea how far reaching that mistake was going to go. They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam looked at his wife and said, we can't let him see us like this. And they tried to cover up their nakedness with fig leaves. And they knew that was insufficient. So they went and hid themselves. By the way, you can't hide from God. You can try. You can run to the ends of the earth. And when you get there, you'll find out that he's already there waiting on you to show up. And they tried to hide from God. And God called out, Adam, where art thou? It's not the fact that God didn't know where Adam was. God wanted Adam to know exactly where he was. You've separated yourself from God. 
In that awful moment where man has brought upon himself the death penalty because God said, in the day ye eat thereof, ye shall surely die. Their bodies were still alive. They didn't know that spiritually they had died. They didn't know that all of a sudden that there was a lake that burns with fire and brimstone somewhere out in their future. A separation from God forever. This had never been for them before, but, but that was the price of their sin. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. And on that awful day, as man stands in shame before their creator, a God, a God that had given them everything that had given them perfection in their bodies and in their minds and in their health, given them a perfect world to live in with no sin, no pain, no tears, no crime, no problems, no sickness, no strife, nothing that bothers us today. They threw it all away for a stupid piece of fruit. That's how little God meant to them at that moment they made that choice that God stands before them and he should have been a God of wrath but he was a God of mercy. He should have been a God of thundering anger, but he was a God of hope. And on that very day, God looked at Eve and he said, and I will put enmity between thee, that's the serpent and the woman. Actually, he's speaking to Satan here. And between thy seed and her seed, it, the seed of the woman, shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. That's Genesis 3.15. That is called the Proto-Evangelium. That is the first gospel in the Bible. That the seed of the woman will one day crush the serpent's head and undo all that happened in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve clung to that promise. They believed in that promise so much so that in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1, that, that Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and she brought forth a son. She named him Cain. The name Cain means gotten or received because she said, for I have gotten a man from the Lord. Adam and Eve believed so strongly in that promise that when she, would, when she received a son and the seed always was, was male, uh, when she received that son, she just thought, this is it. God already sent my savior. This is the one. But sadly, that wasn't the one, was it? Cain showed them that that sin nature was transferred from parent to child to grandchild. And here we are, generations removed from them. And that sin nature arises in every single one of us. And we live in a world where we see the corruption and the chaos and the heartache that it brings. But God did make a promise, didn't he? He said, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. In Genesis chapter 12, uh, some, some 17, 1800 years later, after the Garden of Eden, God talked to a man named Abram and said, I want you to leave where you, you are in Ur of the Chaldees and go to a place that I will show thee. And he said, and I will make of thee a great nation. And he said, while you're there, and I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And listen to this, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. It's the second prophecy in the Bible given about the promise of a savior. Now we know it's going to come through the line of a man named Abraham. And God reinforced that promise again in Genesis chapter 15. Abraham passed along that, that promise to his son Isaac. In Genesis chapter 28 and verse 13, Abraham's grandson Jacob has a vision from God and he saw this ladder stretched between earth and heaven. Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham thy father and the God of Isaac, the land whereon thy li thou liest, to thee will I give it and to thy seed. 
and thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That, that promise ended with almost the same words he said to Jacob's grandfather Abraham. It's the Messianic covenant. Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10, the next prophecy is given when Jacob blesses his own sons and he comes to Judah, his fourthborn. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Shiloh is capitalized, it's a name. It's a name that means the peace giver. The prophet Isaiah would one day tell us that he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. Finish it with me, the Prince of Peace. And so all of a sudden, it's Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. Now it's to Judah and the prophecies go on. In Numbers chapter 24 and verse 17, Moses gave a prophecy and it said, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob. The scepter shall rise out of Israel and shall smite the corners of Moab and destroy all the children of Sheth. And it would be hundreds upon hundreds of years later that some wise men in the, in the East Country would look up one night and see a star in the sky that had never been there before. It was the fulfillment of Numbers 24, 17. And that star began to move and so they prepared and made the journey. It took them two years to get to Bethlehem, but they walked in to Jerusalem first and said, where is he that is born the king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. And yet another prophecy is fulfilled. Second Samuel chapter seven and verse 16 God told David that that prophecy of the Messiah was going to come through his family. Thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. The prophet said, therefore the Lord shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. It's interesting that almost all of the new translations of the Bible change that verse. And they say, behold, a young woman shall conceive and shall bring forth a son. Now, I always think it's a wonderful thing when we hear the news that somebody's going to have a, a new baby. Uh, I had a new grandson this year. And I, I spent time with him this morning, and, and that was exciting. And, and I think it's a blessing, and it's a wonderful thing. But you understand that that miracle has happened billions and billions and billions of times in the earth's history. Uh, it wasn't behold a young woman shall conceive. The Bible says behold a virgin shall conceive. That happened once. Amen. That happened once. That was the miracle of the birth of Christ. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. For, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. We don't know what the Jewish people were looking for when they expected their Messiah. We don't know if they were expecting the heavens to open and suddenly an army comes forth with the Lord himself leading them. By the way, that is going to happen one day. Read Revelation chapter 19. But when he came to save the world from their sins, he didn't come that way. Didn't come to a palace. Didn't come to a rich man's home came to a little out-of-the-way village called Bethlehem, the house of bread. Jesus would later say, I am the bread of life. 
He was born in the town where all of the sacrificial lambs that went to Jerusalem to be sacrificed in the temple, they were all born and cared for in Bethlehem. And that's where Jesus came to be born. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And that's who Joseph and Mary looked at that night. The very place where he's born was foretold. Micah chapter 5, 700 years before the birth of Christ. But thou Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come he forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. God foretold the town. By the way, Joseph, that's where he was born and raised. He was of the house and lineage of David. But Joseph and Mary did not live there. They lived in the north country. They lived in Nazareth. Do you realize if Jesus had been born in Nazareth, he could not lay claim to be the Messiah, the Son of God, because he would not have fulfilled that prophecy. Um, so God, in his foreknowledge and wisdom, said, oh, we're going to take care of that. And he had a Roman emperor named Caesar Augustus, who was a wicked man, who was a vile man, who had no idea of the scriptures and wouldn't have cared if he did. He needed to raise some money to finance his army, so he had his entire empire taxed. And for some reason, it was a taxation unlike any that had been done before in Roman history. He said, to pay your tax, you go back to the city of your birth. And that is where we're going to take a census and find out how many people from each city are occupying our empire. And that is where you will pay your tax. And they had roles. They kept, they kept detailed uh, uh, records of births and so forth, especially in the Jewish culture. And uh, all of a sudden, Joseph has no choice. A Roman emperor who runs the, uh, the entire world said, you have to go back to where you were born from. And that's Bethlehem. That's about a 60 mile journey. Mary's great with child, the Bible says. She's due any day. Now, I remember when Trina was great with child, with especially our firstborn. He was late. Not surprising. He was late. He's about three weeks late. Um, you, you probably did some things like this. I took her out for rides on bumpy roads, you know, anything, you know, we're, we're, you know, drink pickle juice, whatever, whatever you can do. Um, but can you imagine, you know, being great with child? And it sounds like nine months along because of the timeline given here, that poor lady had to make that journey. It wasn't their choice. They had to say, why is this happening? Why is God allowing this? God was putting them exactly where they needed to be to fulfill prophecy. Sometimes in our lives, God moves in ways we do not understand. Sometimes in our lives, God allows things to come to pass that we wish did not. And our tendency when that happens is to get angry with God. That's not fair, or that's not right, or I don't deserve that, or I've served you faithfully and yet... You allow this in my life. But a look at this, what we call the Christmas story, causes us to step back just a little bit before we make such accusations against God and realize there was no mistake involved about this. God wasn't being unkind to Joseph and Mary. They were just in the wrong place to fulfill Scripture. And he said, I need you there. I need you there. Then they was no room for them in the inn. I don't know if it's me. I didn't sleep much last night. Maybe I'm running out of juice. I don't know. <laughs> they got there and the Bible says there was no room for them in the inn. What a, what a disheartening moment for that poor lady. The only place available to them was a place outside of town where the lambs are born. 
a place called the Tower of Adar. Tower of Adar. In Solomon's day, that's where David came from, Solomon's dad. Bethlehem was set aside to be the breeding place of all lambs used in the sacrifices in the temple at Jerusalem. The lamb on the Day of Atonement, the lambs on the Passover, they were all raised there. And the Tower of Adar was the place where the sheep that were about to give birth were brought inside. And those lambs were born and they were treated with the utmost care because a lamb for the temple had to be without spot and without blemish. When that lamb was born, they would clean it carefully and they would wrap it in soft cloths, much like we would a newborn baby, and they would lie it in a safe place so that it would not have any bruises or scratches or marks upon it because that lamb was destined to go to Jerusalem and offer its life as a sacrifice, as a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand that even when they got to Bethlehem after that uncomfortable journey, they found out there's no place for them in the end. They found one place they could go to. I believe it was the Tower of Adar. It was prophesied in the book of Micah. Adar means Tower of the Flock. In Genesis uh, uh, chapter 35 and 21, and Israel, that's Jacob, journey and spread his tent beyond the Tower of Adar. First time it appears in Scripture. Micah prophesied 700 years before the birth of Christ, and thou, O tower of the flock, same place, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come even the first dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. It's all going to happen in the tower of Adar. I know that wasn't Mary's first choice. I'm sure it wasn't Mary's choice at all, but it was the only choice they had. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in the swaddling clothes. All of those sacrificial lambs were wrapped in. Do you understand Jesus was the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world? She was wrapping the Lamb of God in those same garments, placing him in a manger. And I don't, whether, I don't know whether Joseph and Mary realized it or not, but we do because we have the whole Bible in front of us in that one place, on that one night, in that one moment, God fulfilled every promise he ever made about the birth of Christ. The fulfillment of promise. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. When God puts us through trials, that doesn't mean he abandoned his promise because Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. We know that's still in the Bible. Now, that doesn't mean I can go out and live any way I want and God will make it all better. It means if I'm trying to live for God and something negative, something difficult, something bad happens, that doesn't mean that God abandoned me. It means God's working something in my life. And if I'll just be patient and trust in him, it'll come to pass. And it came to pass, the fulfillment of prophecy. There's a second thing involved in this, and that's the fullness of the times. You realize that Eve's firstborn could have been the Savior? There were no other prophecies given yet. There was nothing mentioned. The, the Bible hadn't been written. There was nothing about a virgin birth in Bethlehem and the Tower of Adar and the star and all of that. The only promise is that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head, and God could have let her firstborn be the one. But it didn't happen. It would be 4,000 years before God would keep that promise. And along the way, God would keep adding multiplied promises to that so that when the event came, there was no doubt in anybody's mind who was a student of the scriptures that this is the Son of God. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 says, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, 
made under the law. I mentioned that my son Tim came late, three and a half weeks to be exact. Everybody that we went to a birthing class with, they already had given birth to their child and were enrolling them in kindergarten. We're still waiting on Tim to be born. We'd been to the hospital several times and it was all a false alarm. And, and, uh, and at one point I had even called some relatives and said, this is it, he's gonna be born. I had to call him back and said, nope, he's not coming yet. And that went on and on and on to where we just thought maybe she's overeating. Maybe, maybe she's not having a baby after all. And uh, then uh, late, late, late one Saturday night, she woke me up and she said, uh, Tom, can you help me? And I said, what? She said, my back hurts really bad. Uh, could you just help me out? I said, maybe you're in labor. She said, no, I've had labor pains. This is not it. I said, can I call the doctor? Well, you can, but it's not labor. So I called him and said, she's in labor. Every man knows what it's like to finally be able to say, I told you so. <laughs> and we went in, and of course, the Lord blessed. And later, uh, 11 or 12 hours later, Tim was born, and, and we held our firstborn son. It wasn't for a couple months we found out that if Tim had been born on his due date, when we expected him, that our insurance would not have kicked in yet. And it would not have covered any of it. And we would have been responsible for the entire hospital bill but because of when he was born, it was just past. We had just crossed the one-year threshold of being on that insurance policy. They covered it all. And we got that first taste of uh, God does everything right. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 3, he maketh all things beautiful. Finish the research in his time. He makes everything beautiful in his time. Uh, I, I told someone this morning, yesterday, I went over to the gym for a workout. I went late in the day thinking I'll, I'll get the rack that I need and, and all of that. And, and I was right. The gym wasn't very full. Uh, I had an opportunity to, to witness and meet a guy from the Dominican Republic and so forth. It came time to leave. And I had failed to take into consideration that my gym is in a shopping plaza. And every dad in Meriden was there starting his Christmas shopping. I mean, I mean, getting out of that place, it was ridiculous. I was praying for the rapture. If nothing else, God, just rapture me. Get, get me out of this place. And horns were honking and fists were going. People were using sign language on each other and uh, pulling out in front of each other. And it was just an absolute, and impatience was broiling to the surface. Do you understand that God's people waited and waited and God could have sent his son at any time he wanted, but the Bible says when the fullness of the time was come. I don't have time to go into a lot of detail for us to understand this, but consider a couple things. When Jesus was born for the first time in human history, there was a one world language, the first time since the Tower of Babel that was understood from India to the British Isles and everywhere in between. It was called Greek. The Romans had taken the Greek language from their conquered territories. It became the language of business and commerce. And everybody understood Greek. You realize when the followers of Christ were sent out, they were preaching to the Jewish people. They often preached in Hebrew, but the gospel went to the Gentiles. Aren't you glad for that, all of us Gentiles in this room? And uh, uh, the apostles didn't always understand uh, a Germanic tongue or a Spanish tongue, but everybody knew Greek. Isn't that amazing that God knew that was going to happen? When Christ was born, the Romans had developed a system of transportation of roads and shipping lines unparalleled in human history so that you could traverse the entire Roman Empire on a road. 
Not a, not a path through the woods on a road. And the Romans built their roads to last. In the year 2000, I rode on a Roman road and it's still there. And the DOT in the state of Connecticut needs to learn from ancient Rome. That is the whole point of this sermon. Amen? But that, that was, the Romans were the ones that put it there in the fullness of the time, the crucifixion itself. Jesus wasn't just born to be born so that we'd have a wonderful story and a fulfillment of prophecy. He was born to die on Calvary. Every lamb that was born in the tower of Adar was destined for the altar in Jerusalem. Every one of them. And the Savior was destined for a cross. Do you know that throughout the Old Testament, just as there were prophecies about his birth, there were prophecies about his death. Matthew 22 gives details about his death that can only be explained by, uh, in death by crucifixion. The Romans didn't invent crucifixion. It's believed the Persians may have done so. But the Romans perfected it in such a way that when, when they put Jesus Christ on the cross, it fulfilled every prophecy of the Old Testament in the fullness of the time. God wasn't late. God was right on time. And sometimes I get impatient with God and I need God to fix it and I need him to fix it now. Or I need him to fix me and I need him to fix it now. But there are times that I've learned that God said, son, just, just be still. Know that I am God. It was a fulfillment of prophecy. It was the fullness of time. And it was filled with hope. It is filled with hope. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 16, the people which sat in darkness saw great light. And to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, his light sprung up. The book of Isaiah prophesied that in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2, it was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. The people which sat in darkness, saw great light. In Pennsylvania, there's a place we used to take our youth group when I, I served in that area called the Laurel Caverns. It was down south, almost into West Virginia, and you rode up this steep mountain, and there were some caverns that were first occupied uh, by some, some uh, local Indian tribes and so forth, and it's a commercial place now, and, and you can pay a certain amount of money, and they have lighted paths, and they have sound and speakers and all that, but they also have what you can do. It's called the exploratory. You're required to have a hard hat. They provide them. You're required to have two flashlights. You're required to have extra batteries for each flashlight. You're told to bring water. You're told to bring a, a sweatshirt or something like that. And uh, our first time down, there was a guide that helped us. And we're walking down the lighted path part. And all of a sudden, there's this little crack in the wall. And he said, we're going this way. And we started following that crack in the wall and there was a black cable stretched to one side of it uh, over on our right-hand side and it just kind of wound in and out and up and down for about 150 feet. It, at some points, you're kind of turning sideways, even a little guy like me to get through it. At other places, you're ducking. I didn't duck as much as the other people did uh, and so forth. And all of a sudden, we were into this gigantic cavernous room. He said, shine your flashlight up, and, and it was much higher than this ceiling in this room now. And we could see bats clinging to the top of that thing. I don't know how they got down there. There was a stream running through it, and we kind of shone our flashlights all around. There were boulders scattered all over the place. And our tour guide, who was going to leave us after that point, said, I want everybody to find a seat and sit down on a stone or a boulder. Everybody needs to be seated, so we did so. He said, when I count to three, I want you to shut off your flashlights. One, two, three, off. 
And all of a sudden, our eyes began to adjust, and we could see nothing. Most of the time at night, your eyes can adjust, and there'll be the light of the moon or a street light or something like that, and you can at least make out shapes, maybe not colors and, and details, uh, but you can make out those things. The darkness there was beyond description. It's a darkness that could be felt. He said, I'm having you do that. He said, because if you get separated from your group and something happens and your flashlight breaks or your batteries die or maybe you forgot to bring extra, your extra batteries are no good and you find yourself all of a sudden like that, he said, the only thing you can do, the only safe thing you can do is sit down right where you are and wait for, wait for someone to come and rescue you. And it happened. There were people that got injured. People sometimes went down by themselves. They had to sign papers and all that kind of stuff saying, if we die, we won't sue you, like dead people can sue. Um, you know, all that kind of stuff. He's, but, it, but it happened. I remember reading headlines about uh, people that got trapped down in the caverns there. He said, when, it, when that happens, don't try to maneuver in the darkness. You'll hurt yourself. And at the very least, you'll get more lost than you already are. Just sit down and you have to wait till somebody comes to you. From the time that Malachi wrote the last chapter of the Old Testament and laid his pen down to the events of Luke chapter 1, there was no more message from God. It was called the dark years. The only type of miracle that even occurred then was what is celebrated in Hanukkah. How many are familiar with that? And the menorahs and so forth. When the Jewish people were cleansing the temple after the defilement by a wicked man named Antiochus Epiphanes. When they came into the holy place, they came to the golden candlestick and there was an oil that filled that candlestick and that, from that oil uh, shone the light in the holy place and they realized they only had one day's worth of oil left. It takes seven days to make a new batch. God gave very specific ingredients and methodology for that. They had one day's worth of oil. They lit the lamps and the priests began the task of making the new oil and they couldn't speed it up. Seven days is seven days no matter how you cut it. The miracle was at the end of seven days, the lamp was still lighted and burning when they were able to come in with new fresh oil to fill the lamp, and it celebrated the festival of lights. You say, do you think that really happened? Well, our New Testament tells us in one place that Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the winter for the feast. Read your Old Testament law. There are no Jewish feast days like atonement, Passover, feast of trumpets in the winter. They all happen in the spring, the summer, and the fall. The only thing the Jews have celebrated in the winter is the festival, festival, festival of lights now called Hanukkah. In an amazing, the only miracle, by the way, Jesus went to the feast. That tells me it happened. His presence lent credence to that. This is not a myth. Isn't it amazing that in a time of darkness, the only miracle recorded was one of light. But that night in Bethlehem, the light of the world came. And that was God in the flesh. And it was filled with hope. In the darkness of the fields that night, the angel of the Lord came unto a group of shepherds and said unto them, Fear not, for I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. There's so much I could say, and 
I didn't mean to go over time. We just had a lot of music today. But as I consider this text for me, and with the truth that I've brought forth to you, there's a few things I want to draw your attention to. Number one, if you're not saved today, you need to receive Christ as your Savior. The gift of God is eternal life. And in that manger that night was God's gift to all of mankind. The Christmas story is filled with people who went and received him and worshipped him and others who said, I'm too busy, I don't have time, I don't want him. And you and I must make the same choice, either receive him or reject him. If you're not saved today, won't you receive Christ as your savior? That's why he came. If you are saved, rejoice. Rejoice that God loved you enough to send you a savior. Don't ever get over that. Don't read this story as, yeah, I've read it a hundred times. Read it a hundred and one and get excited every time that God did that for you. And also grab from this story the assurance that God always keeps his promises. He always keeps his word and he's not done with you. You may have stumbled, you may have fallen, you may have messed up, but, but God, God loves to take broken things and put them back together again. If you're in a dark time, would you rest in the promises of God and trust that he said, I make everything, everything beautiful in my time and the light is coming. Don't give up, be still and know that he is God. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed this morning.